So I have some, I have some bad news and some good news. The bad news is this is the last week of our Giants series. It's been incredible. The good news is you never have to watch that again, <laughs> ever. And so we're all, you can, you can smile. It's a good thing. We are so glad you are here at The Crossing today. Um, we have had an incredible summer and just had so many folks who have visited us, become a part of what God is doing. And if you're a guest today, we are thrilled to have you with us. We want to give a special shout out to our Southeast campus as they are watching this today. Our microsites, um, we have our Utah microsite that is actually in the house um, today. Or some of them, some of you are watching from the comfort of your living room or maybe you're on the beach and you're watching on your smartphone. Isn't it awesome though? We kid about it, but technology allows us to um, really expand outside of these four walls and even outside of the limitations of our campus where people can, can check out the crossing or you can stay connected to the crossing even if you're not physically here in the room. So that is an awesome thing. One of the uh, great uh, values of the crossing is that we believe that people were made to make a difference. And so every summer we have hundreds of folks that go and travel. And I had the privilege to lead a team to the country of Ireland um, just last month in June. And there was a team of 40 over a course of a couple weeks who got to go and work alongside our partner Elevate Church that's there in Limerick. It was incredible. It was awesome. And part of what was cool is the last day before we got on a plane and flew home, we went out and we were able to take a little bit of tour and see some of the sites in Ireland. And one of the known sites is what they call the Cliffs of Moher. And it is incredible. If you don't even know it, you've probably seen pictures of it. Just these, they use it in movies. It's just an incredible site. So we went and looked. But the team that I was on, we took it next level. We decided that we were going to start hiking the trail that runs along. And it's actually a 10-mile trail. We took half of it. So we did um, about five miles over the course of a couple hours. And what's interesting about the trail is that there's sort of an official one. And then there's one that people just kind of make on their own. And you're literally walking, as far as I am, from the front of this platform alongside these cliffs that are just fantastic. So our team's like, you know, part of the time we're taking selfies and pictures. And the other part, it was solitude. And it was just an amazing ending to our trip. And I came home and I, I was thinking about that experience and telling somebody about it. And they said that I ought to read a book that just came out. So I grabbed the book. It's a book called On Trails. By a, guy named, um, by a guy named Robert Moore, a brand new author. And here's what's interesting, is this dude actually studies trails. Isn't it crazy what people choose to study? Like, he studies trails. And what got him excited about it was he did a five-month, what they call through-hike, on the Appalachian Trail. So he started all the way down in Georgia and went all the way up into the Northeast. And it took five months. And he got so engaged with trails, that he began studying them and where they came from. And he said some interesting things in this book that I read. One of his quotes is that the, the origin of trails is very interesting. He's, he's discovered this, is when I found an unmarked trail in the woods or across the city park, I used to wonder about its authorship. But usually I've learned the answer is that no one made it. Instead, it emerged. Someone made a stab at a problem, took a tentative trip, and the next person followed, and then another, subtly improving the route along the way. And as part of his study, he actually gets to the point where he defines trails and paths and what they are. And he, he says this, to put it as simply as possible, a path is a way of making sense of the world. There are infinite ways to cross a landscape. The options are overwhelming and pitfalls abound. The function of a path is to reduce this 
(laughs) this teeming chaos into an intelligible line. And then he says this, the ancient prophets and sages, most of whom lived in an era when footpaths provided the primary mode of transport, they understood this fact intimately. He quotes the Bible by saying, the Bible too is crisscrossed with trails. He quotes Jeremiah. He says, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you shall find rest for your souls. And this idea is such a great picture of the journey of faith that each of us are on. As we're discovering Jesus, we're getting closer to him as we're discovering our own paths. And over the last few weeks, we have identified and we have illuminated some trails of the giants of the faith. We've illuminated trails where giants took risks. They showed courage. They were ordinary in so many cases, and yet they did extraordinary things in the way and the world in which God had uniquely place them. And so we've arrived at the last one. Today we are going to talk about our final giant, our final hero, a remarkable woman who walked the paths and trails of this earth around 3,000 years ago named Deborah, whose story we find in Judges chapters 4 and 5. I'm going to invite you, either on your phone or in your Bible, to turn to Judges chapter 4. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. And as you're finding it, I want to just one more time kind of review some background and history of the Judges. If you were here a few weeks ago when we talked about Gideon, we did this, but some of you were on the beach. And so let me catch you up real quick as you find it. Um, The people of Israel were led by judges for the period of time, about 300 years between Joshua when they conquered the land and when the first king was actually crowned, Saul. So it was about 300 years. And when you think of a judge, we're not talking about the judges in our court system today. We're not talking about Judge Judy. The judges were people in that time who were actually considered the leaders of the people. They did a couple things. One, they spent a lot of time, in this case, delivering the people, helping the people find deliverance from those who were oppressing them. But they also would listen, and they would settle disputes among the people. And remember, the Israelites, we know, were a people who were set apart by God to be an example of the world, to to the world, to point the rest of the world towards God. But during this time, they kept too quickly. They would adapt the practices and the morals of those around them. The phrase that keeps showing up that that talks about this period is this. The people did what was right in their own eyes. If we think of it in terms of trails, the people as a nation and as a community were not following the path that God had clearly laid out before them or the trail that had been left behind them for them to go forward. Instead, they were in this cycle that we've discussed before where they would be disobedient and then God would bring discipline and then they would need deliverance. And this cycle went over and over again. And when it came to deliverance, it was the judges like Deborah who would provide that. Now, Deborah was the only recorded um, woman judge in the Bible. And she came along at a time where where the people were very, very far from God. Society was in a tragic and violent condition because of this disobedience we talked about. They were now in the middle of God's discipline. There was economic collapse. People were confined to their homes because there was so much violence around them. And this is where we pick up Deborah's story in Judges chapter 4. Now let me warn you. There is a lot of characters in this story, all right? There is a lot. You're going to need full attention right now, right? Everybody right here. Because you are going to get lost. And the end of the story is awesome. 
All right? So don't read ahead. But you got to keep track of who all these characters are as we go. Beginning in verse 1, it says this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So here they are, again, disobedient. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. Okay? So now it's God's discipline. They're in the middle of this cycle. Now Sisera, who you're going to hear about through the whole story, keep him in mind, was the commander of this army. And he was based in Harosheth. And I'm not even going to read that word, all right? But let's just, let's just move forward. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And so they cried out to the Lord for help. Remember, they're disobedient, right? Then God disciplines, and then they say, God, bring us deliverance. Now, he had 900 chariots. Now, this would be like tanks, okay? So if you are on foot and someone comes with 900 chariots, you are at a distinct disadvantage, all right? So this is when we are introduced to Deborah. And in verse 4, it says this. Now, Deborah, a prophet, it's important, the wife of Lapidoth was leading Israel at that time. Just ponder that for a second. Ladies in the room. Ponder that for a second, okay? Deborah was leading Israel at this time, and she held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. So her day job was she would leave her family at home, and she would take her lunch, and she would go sit under this palm tree, and the people would line up, and one by one they would come, and she would give them wisdom and settle disputes, and they would say, you know, whose cow, does, who legally does this cow belong to? And should we eat at Chick-fil-A or Cane's? Big, important decisions like this that Deborah would sit under this palm tree and make decisions about. But one day she decided that it was time for her to call the commander of the army. And his name was Barak. And so she sent for Barak. He was the son of Imanam from Kadesh in Nephtali. And she said to him, again, she's a prophet, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, these are tribes in Israel, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. This is where the battle is going to take place. And I will lead Sisera... Okay, you're still tracking, right? Nod with me. I will lead sister, the commander of Jabin's army, this is the oppressor, with his 900 chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. And then Barak has a request. Sounds good. But if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Here's this commander. He's kind of standing, kicking the dirt in front of the palm tree. Sounds good, I'll go, but you need to go with me. So Deborah responds in this way. She says, certainly, I love her response. <laughs> I will go with you, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a what? Woman. Some of you ladies should have said that louder, all right? You had your moment, you missed it, all right? <laughs> into the hands of a So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, all right? She went with him to Kadesh. Now, it says that Deborah is a prophet, and this is important because um, she's the only judge that was called a prophet, and a prophet was one who not only heard from God, but was the mouthpiece of God. So whatever God was speaking, she would speak to the people, all right? And she was also a wife, and she was probably a mother. She was a military, a civic, a political, and a spiritual leader. One of the writers I was reading said that she would have been the president, the pope, and Rambo, all wrapped up in one. 
That would have been Deborah. And not a bad resume for a middle-aged woman living um, in this hierarchical culture of the Middle East at that time. And she called on her people to return to God. And then in the midst of that, she got a clear picture and vision that Barak was to go into battle because she could see that God was going to deliver his people at that moment. So in verse 10, it says, Barak summoned these tribes. These are tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Nephtali. And 10,000 men went up under his command. Of course, Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kiddush. Now this is important. Some of you are like, what? Okay. This is important. It's like we're going to battle, and suddenly the writer of this story has this little side note where he talks about this guy who couldn't get along with his, um, with his family, and so he buys an RV, and he takes his wife out into the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, because he wants to be left alone. He doesn't want anybody to bother him. So he lives, but what he doesn't realize, what we're about to learn is, he's literally parked his RV right in the middle of the battle. Okay, So that's why this is important. All right? And it goes on. It says this. Then Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera. Now I want you to notice that it's, it's Barak doing his thing, being coached by Deborah, but it says that the Lord, not Barak, routed Sisera and all his chariots and armies by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Now, if you're a military strategist, what you just read is very important. There's some details in chapter 5 that we hear that helps fill in what's going on. What basically happened was Sisera had chosen this dry riverbed area down where the, the river would run and then there would be this dry runoff area. To, to actually have a battle, which most of the time, if you had these chariots, these tanks, would be great because you could keep the enemy on foot. You could run your chariots down and they couldn't escape. But in chapter 5, we read that God actually sent one of those monsoonal flash floods, the ones like we had over the last few weeks. And so when he got down there to fight his normal battle, suddenly God got involved, flooding started to happen, and all those chariots that were supposed to allow them to just quick victory were completely, literally dead in the water. And at that moment, Sisera, who was this commander, was a coward. And he left his men behind to be slaughtered, and he took off running. And it's at this time another woman is introduced into the story, and her name was Jael. Because as Sisera is running, he comes and he fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of who? Heber, the Kenite. That's the guy with the RV. Right? He's out in the middle of nowhere because he can't get along with anybody. And suddenly this commander of the army runs right into the middle of his camp. Right? And so Jael went out. And she meets Sisera, and she says to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she first of all covers him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened up a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. So here's this mighty warrior, right? She tucks him in. She doesn't give him water. 
She gives him probably some warm milk, and he drinks it, and he's tired, and he's nodding off. And if you stop there in the story, you're thinking, that is such a chick thing to do, right? <laughs> Just tucking him in like a little mommy, right? A little mama's boy, right? How's your milk? She probably sang him a lullaby, right? But the next verse kind of blows our mind. It's about to get very dark. It says that as he dozes off, Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer. Easy. I told you it got good if you hung in. And she went up quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg, not just through his temple, but through his head into the ground. And then, because we wouldn't notice, and he died. Good to know. And she walks out to her husband and says, nailed it. (laughs) Boom. Israel is saved by the hands of two women largely. Deborah, with God with her, and Jael, who was used by God in this violent way. And I know the violence sometimes of the Bible is like, whoa, but this is in there. And, and I always tell people, like, what you need to realize is that God is working in the context as human consciousness is continuing to change, right? And so some of this is the context of, you know, kind of the, the way things were during that time. So we just have to understand that. But it's a crazy story. It's a crazy story. It's like Game of Thrones kind of stuff. Not that I would watch that. (laughs) And after this particular battle, we learn that the land actually lived in peace for 40 years. So if we were, with that story in mind, in the few moments we have remaining, if we were to then get in line, and we heard all about Deborah, and she's this judge, and she's a prophet, and we were to stand in line and wait to talk to her under that palm tree, wait for our turn, and then we were to sit down and say, Deborah, just tell us. What's the deal? Like, how's this happen? I believe that she would say to us today these three things that I want to just have you walk out of the room with, all right? Whether you're a male or female in the room today, is this that we need to lean in, that we need to lean on to, and that we need to lean out. The first one is this she would say, Listen, if you want to be a giant, you need to lean in to your calling. You need to lean into that calling. If you get a chance to read Judges chapter 5, it's actually a worship song. It's a song. It's actually Deborah's song that they put together after this victory. And she gives a little bit more context for what went on. And in verse 7 of that, she kind of says how she emerged as a leader. She says simply this, villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose. And she doesn't say that arrogantly. She just rose up and responded to the call of God to lead her people. And just think about all the reasons why Deborah's leadership is astonishing. Even in modern times, we do stop and we take note when a woman leans in and takes the lead. But back then, it was unheard of. Deborah was bold and brave in significant ways, but she not only overcame enormous obstacles from an external sense in the culture that she lived in, But some of her greatest hindrances, I believe, probably came, as they do for most of us, from inside. Internal obstacles take on a lot of different forms, but they generally exist because our minds are filled with lies. The Bible describes our greatest enemy as the father of lies. And in our culture, truth is elusive today, right? 
But this is especially true when it comes to what we believe about ourselves. We have this running commentary in our head. We have this running commentary in our head that really tells us, like, an an obnoxious roommate that we need to just get out of here, right? We just need him to move on. That's what's going on in our head, these lies that we believe about ourselves. Things like this, I'm not strong enough, right? I'm not strong enough, good enough, educated enough, old enough, young enough, rich enough, attractive enough. I'm not the right gender. I'm not the right race. I'm simply not enough. And listen, guys, when we allow these voices to take root, we limit what God wants to do in our lives. And I'm sure Deborah had these voices too, but she leaned in to what God had called her to be, and she simply led. So lean in. Deborah would say, lean into your calling and don't cave in to the lies and the fears that come in to your head. And then she would say this. Now listen, if you're going to lean in, you also need to understand how to lean on. And she would say, you need to lean on to your God. And this is something that we learn from Deborah, especially as we read chapter 5, that Deborah drew her confidence and her strength from her relationship with God. You need to know this. Before Deborah was a warrior and went to battle with Barak, she was a worshiper. She was a worshiper. It was in those moments with God that she received direction and wisdom and confidence to guide her. And me... I much prefer warrior to worshiper, right? A lot of us are wired that we're like, worship, okay, right? We want to go get it, get after it, go do that, go do this, and then we'll check in with God when we get a break. But Deborah understood that her time with God was what led her to be able to be an effective leader. The only way she knew the exact day that Barak should go into battle was because God had revealed it to her. She knew when to wait. She knew when to listen. God said, go. God sent natural forces, a flash flood. God placed Jael in the middle of nowhere at just the right moment. Here's how I think it looks best. It's this. Human engagement, and we've seen this over and over again in these giants, plus heavenly intervention equals an unbeatable combination. Ponder that for a minute. Think about these these organizations that we've talked about throughout the summer. Each one, they're awesome, right? But what makes them awesome is this, that somebody is engaging and trusting on heavenly intervention to engage and thread through what they're doing. And when that happens, we see unbeatable combination. We see an impact. And all of us, that needs to be our story. Our story. So we lean into our calling, Deborah would say. And she would say, as you lean into your calling, make sure you're leaning on to your God. But lastly, she would say, I want to warn you. Because in the midst of that, you got to lean out of your limitations. There's going to be a lot of them that are going to get thrown at you you got to lean out. When we were walking that trail in Ireland, I was like a traffic cop. I was like a crossing guard, right? So I've got like 20 adults, and they're like middle schoolers, right? I'm like, guys, just keep walking. Guys, stay away from the edge. Guys, stop stepping off the path. Stop doing that. And they're taking pictures. They're leaning over, right? And I'm going into like dad voice, like you. You know, I'm talking to 40-year-olds. Like, get back. Finally, I just gave up. I'm like, just die already, all right? I don't care. I'm, I'm walking. Like, I don't care. And I knew I was done when I saw this picture online. I knew they, they hadn't listened to me at all when I see Michael Tom. I'm like, I'm like, dude, right? Like, that is not the trail. I don't see it. It's not even close. I don't know where you are, right? But I, I saw this picture this week, and I thought, Deborah 
would be sitting right there, right there next to Michael. That's kind of the way she was. Not in a, not in a totally crazy way, but in a way that says, I'm going to push aside limitations because I want to experience everything that I've been called to experience. And I'm going to trust God in the midst of it, and I'm going to step out. And so Deborah would have pushed that on all, of the, on all of us. She would have said, lean out of your limitations. And to highlight that, I want to talk about two of the supporting characters in this story before we're done. And they're both men. The first one's Barak, and the second one is Lapidoth. The first one's Barak. And Barak, he kind of gets a bad rap because he's a military guy. And initially, some people are like, dude, why are you like asking her to go along with you? But we learn a little bit about Barak, and, and we can learn from him. Because if we dig deeper in, we see that actually he respected her as a leader at a deep level. And he was smart enough and, most importantly, humble enough to be willing to collaborate with her. To say this, let's bring our strengths together into this situation. And there is a power when men and women work together with mutual respect and honor and humility. We see it right here at the crossing all the time. I mean, throughout this campus today, right now, in this moment, there are a mixture of people serving and cooperating and leading and collaborating. We have some amazing women who are leading on our campus right now. Rachel, I mean, does she not have enough enthusiasm? I mean, come on, right? Because we believe that God would want us to, to not experience limitations, but to lean out of them. Here's what you need to know about this place. Here's what you need to know. At the crossing, we don't allow women to use their leadership gifts. We expect them. We expect them to use those gifts and to use them well, okay? And I'm so grateful to be part with Shane, to be part of the elders, to be part of a place where people, regardless of gender, can rise up, lean in, and use their gifts and lean out of the limitations. Which brings us to Lapidoth, who's only mentioned in passing as Deborah's husband. He was basically Mrs. Deborah. <laughs> but when I learned the rich meaning of Lapidoth's name, it gave me a clearer picture into who he was. His name actually means lighter of torches or fanner of flames. And with that, we see a picture of a partner who fans into flames the gifts and destiny of the other. And this is no small, small thing for Lapidoth back then, because in that culture, the patriarchal times of Deborah, if her husband had forbidden her to use her gifts, which was his right, that would have been the end of it. Would have blown any chances for her to leave her, lead her people. Her gifts would have been completely shut down. But we see that Lapidoth was secure enough. And he was grounded enough to allow his wife to soar. And all of us, no matter our gender, can be Lapidoths. But men, listen to me in the room. I want to speak to you just for a second. I want to challenge you to consider whether you are being Lapidoth to the women in your life. Your spouse, your daughters, girlfriends women around you in the workplace. Are you being lapid? Are you fanning the flames? Or are you somehow puffing up your chest and snuffing it out? This is significant for me because I have a daughter who's 21 years old, and I want her to be Deborah. Man, I want to fan the flames. I want her to see a future full of possibilities. I want her to discover her calling and lean into it. I want her to discover a relationship with God that she can lean onto. And I want her to look at limitations and look at her calling and make a strong decision to lean harder. To see where God wants to use her. 
That's leadership. And you read the Bible as a whole, you'll read names like Sarah and Hagar and Rahab and Esther and Ruth. Names like Mary and Martha in the New Testament, Priscilla and Phoebe and Lydia and Rhoda. All women leaning into their calling, leaning onto their God. And God used them to cut new paths. In the study of trails I referred to earlier, I was introduced to something called desire lines. And I think this is what Deborah's do. Desire lines is like when you go on a college campus and there's sidewalks and then you see those like muddy trails that are cut through the grass, like shortcuts. Those are what people who study trails, all three of them, call desire lines, all right? It's the line that people have a desire and they see a better way and they, they, they shift it. And what they've studied is they had one campus where they sodded over those desire lines with grass and within two weeks, boom, they just cut the lines right back through. And I think of that and I think of Deborah's. And I think of people like that who will see like, yes, there's a path, but maybe there's this way that God's calling me. Maybe I need to cut a path. I want to give you a modern example before we close. Her name's Beth. And Beth is awesome. Beth was a single mom very early in her early 20s. Her husband was an alcoholic and he left her. And so she felt like the calling of entrepreneurship and she borrowed money from a neighbor and she started a business in in her community and it went really well and she started a couple other businesses. So she, she she followed that calling. But then she made the mistake of going on a mission trip. She went to Nicaragua, and Nicaragua is the poorest country in Central America. When she was there, she noticed these women, mostly lightly single moms, who were not able to support their families, not even able to buy what, um, the school fee in Nicaragua so that their, their children could go to work. And so she, she started thinking um, what she could do, and, and, and God placed something on her heart, and she thought, what if I started micro-franchises? where these women would sell produce, fresh produce that is not available in their neighborhoods, but they could sell it right out of their homes so they would never have to leave their homes. They could still care for their kids and they could be a a community. And then immediately she said, I started thinking of all the limitations. I don't speak Spanish. I hate raising money. I don't like to speak in front of people. All those things, right? Don't really know the culture of Nicaragua. So again, lies, lies, external limitations. But she came home and she said, I'm going to do it. And she pressed in. And today... There's 105 women leading these micro-franchises, selling produce in their neighborhood with an organization that Beth created called Supply Hope in Nicaragua. It's awesome, right? And they they all get on a bus once a month. They put on their best clothes, and they ride the bus from all around the, the community, and they ride to a room that Beth rents, and she brings in people to train and equip and encourage these women and empower them. And that's being a Deborah. That's leaning into your calling and leaning onto your God. So as we close this series, and you've heard giant after giant, you got to make a call. Is it just going to be information, or is it going to be transformation? Are you just going to look at the trail and go, that's a nice trail, or you're going to put one foot in front of the other, and you're going to follow in the footsteps uniquely in your life where God has placed you of the Deborahs, and the Jonas, and the Moses, and the Gideons, and the Rahabs. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because listen, as you lean in, and you lean on, you lean out of the limitations that are going to try to push you down. I believe that God will go with you, and he will guide you, and do powerful and amazing things in your life, that more than you could even imagine. Let's pray together. 
Father, we're grateful that we have these trails of these giants that we can lean into and see and follow. God, we ask that in this room, whether male or female, God, that you would inspire us to engage at new levels. God, I pray for the men in this room that they would be Lapidoths. God, forgive us for the time that we've quenched or we've suppressed the calling and the giftings, the amazing ladies you've placed around us. And Lord, I pray for the ladies in the room. God, that they would step boldly into their unique wiring to lead, to use their giftings in powerful ways. God, we don't allow it. We expect it as you do. Let it be so, God, we pray in your name.